collaboration around solving problems with sort of diverse stakeholders is the way we should be trying to solve lots of the world's problems. And we've now got the opportunity to do that because we can connect to each other from different countries, different backgrounds, different experiences. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode we speak with someone who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this conversation, I spoke with Dr. Sue Black, who is a professor of computer science at Durham University. She is perhaps best known for her instrumental role in helping to save Bletchley Park, the once top-secret home of World War II codebreakers, including Alan Turing and thousands of others, half of whom were women. Allegedly, Bletchley Park shortened World War II by two to three years and saved over 20 million lives. With bright red hair and relentless enthusiasm, Sue is a tireless campaigner for the role that technology can play in creating positive social change, in particular for women and mums in the tech sector. She left school at 16, was in a women's refuge at 25 with three small children, and went back into education at 26 to get a degree in computing, which transformed her life. And she's now recognised as one of the most influential women in computing, and even appeared on the legendary BBC radio programme Desert Island Discs earlier this year. Our conversation explored her life history and fascinating background and what got her into computing, the Bletchley Park campaign, and also we spoke about a programme called Crucible by Nesta, which is where she and I first met. So I started out by asking her about social mobility through education and asked her, are you the exception that proves the rule? Enjoy! I didn't really see any other options for me. I found myself, you know, like having come out of a, an abusive marriage and then being in a refuge for six months and then getting a flat in Brixton on a council estate, which I was utterly delighted with. And so I got my daughter into reception at school. Once we got settled in the flat, got the boys into playgroup for um, two hours a day, I think every morning. Hmm. And then I thought, okay, so I've got them settled. What am I going to do now? And I hadn't worked for a few years because I'd been having three children. And I thought, well, I, I need to get a job. I need to go back to work, earn some money. But then when I thought about it, I realized, well, I left school at 16. I had five O-levels. Um, I'd worked in various jobs till I was 20, and here I was at, I think, 25 or 26, having not worked for several years, not many qualifications, experiencing kind of like basically like office admin, being a student nurse, working like with refugees and stuff. So so I didn't like have a proper career path, I suppose, as yeah. we'd see it. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll probably be working in a supermarket is what I imagined, or like doing clerical work in an office. And the sort of money that I would earn doing that wouldn't even pay for childcare for the kids, let alone anything else. So I realized I couldn't go back to work. So then mm. I thought, well, well, what else can I do? Um, and I hadn't wanted to leave school when I did at 16. I had to leave school really because I'd left home because my home was dysfunctional and 
I was living in my friend's parents' house and they didn't have loads of money. So I, I paid rent to, to my friend's mum, friend Kate's mum, which meant that, you know, I was going to school, but then I was working evenings and weekends in a cafe as a waitress. And after several months of that, I found that I, I um, was falling asleep at school. I wasn't doing my A-levels. So I realised I wasn't going to get any A-levels, so I might as well get a job. So, you know, I hadn't wanted to leave education back then when I was 16. So I thought, well, maybe I can go back into education now then. Maybe I could try and get the A-levels that I didn't get. Maybe mm. I can try and get to uni. And then if I can get a degree, maybe I can get a better paid job, which would be enough to, to kind of bring up the family. And then, um, so that's what I did really. I went along to the local college tried to get onto a maths A-level course because maths was my favourite subject at school. Hmm. And they luckily had a like fast track maths course, two A-levels in one year. So I did that. And then that enabled me to apply to uni. So I chose computing at uni. I think really because I thought I'd earn more money if I did computing rather than maths. And then kind of took it from there really. And so I honestly couldn't think of any other options at that point I just didn't know of anything else I could do so in a way I feel like I'm lucky that I managed to do that that those opportunities were there and I don't know if they're still there you know I got a grant to go to uni yeah I mean I I can't really answer your question but I, I would be very interested to hear from people maybe you're in a similar situation now what is the situation now you know could you make that happen if you were a single parent or not? Could you get back into education? Are there courses that you can go on at college that will, you know, get you reasonably quickly into a into a degree? Would that work for someone now? I, I'm not an expert, but I think kind of social mobility is much lower now than it was uh, a few decades ago, and so right. I'm not sure. I'm curious, how hungry and ambitious were you for success and learning versus just trying to? do the next best thing in front of you to, uh, for you and your family? Initially, it was, well, I mean, it's kind of half and half maybe. I, I wanted to earn enough money to bring up the kids. Hmm. Um, and when I started studying, I absolutely loved it. So, you know, I mean, I was always like a, a early reader, a voracious reader, I always read loads, hmm. did really well at primary school. It's kind of like top of the class and then went to grammar school and was kind of in the middle. <laughs> um but then had some, like, you know, like my mum died and I had major challenges at home. So it all kind of messed up at secondary school, at grammar school, really. So I always loved learning. Absolutely. I was always curious. You know, I used to read encyclopedias if I could get hold of one and that sort of thing. So I was always that sort of a child and always loved just reading loads of non-fiction books, I suppose, and like reference books and stuff, as well as novels. So I was always reading. So I definitely loved education from the beginning. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I was really driven to earn enough money to provide for the kids because, you know, there was no way I wanted to bring my kids up with us all being in poverty for their whole childhood, you know, that really mm. I couldn't bear the thought of that. So I was sort of driven to to earn as much money as possible. And so the kind of career choices that I took, you know, once I got into doing a PhD, I tried to earn as much money as possible from part-time teaching. And then when a lectureship came up, you know, I went for that to try and get a full-time job, even though I hadn't finished my PhD, because then I'd earn more money. And then I applied for promotion anytime I could to get more money. And, you know, kind of a lot of it, particularly back then, was just about getting enough money to bring up three kids and give them the sort of life that I wanted them to have. I'm just curious, because you went to university, I guess, later than 
perhaps some of your peers in your course. Is that right? And did that, how did that affect your confidence uh, in education and then in research and, and work uh, after that? Yeah. So at uni, most of the people in my class were 18 year old guys. Yeah. Um, I think there were about six of us that weren't 18. Um, and about, and there was 80 of us in the class, 83. And I think eight were women. So like eight women. Wow. And about six over 18. Uh, well, but it didn't seem to matter then at all. You know, it was just great to meet people and hang out and, mm. to know, to learn stuff. And yeah, it was just really cool. I loved it. Um, <laughs> So it didn't seem to, it didn't even seem a, a thing. Several of them called me Auntie Sue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, quite a few of the guys used to come around and stay at our flat, muck about with the kids, you know. So it was fun, go down the park, take the kids down the park, play football and stuff like that, go around and stay at their houses. So I had a sort of proper student life, I feel like, and, and the kids just kind of joined in. And also the, the uni were good too in terms of, when it was half term at school, I needed to take, I couldn't, you know, either, either I took the kids into the classroom or I couldn't go to uni and everyone mm. was absolutely fine about it. No one kind of batted an eyelid really about um, the kids coming in with me. And I just made sure that they had things to do so that they would sit quietly during lectures and stuff like that. So, so being a bit older, didn't, n- nobody batted an eyelid. Uh, no. w- what about being a woman in a, in a class of, full of mostly men? Was, was that an, ever an issue? No, it definitely wasn't then. I didn't, don't think I even thought about it. It wasn't really until I started going to academic computer science conferences that I kind of noticed. Mm. And I didn't realize straight away that there was any issue. But my PhD supervisor had told me that you need to network at conferences. You've got to get to know people. You want to publish papers. And and so the first conference I went to, so I was really shy. The first conference I went to, I thought, okay, I'll set myself a target. I'm talking to one person that I don't know. (laughs) And so, which seems mad now, but it was a big thing then. So at that conference, there was a guy who who gave a sort of entertaining talk, seemed very down to earth. So I chatted to him in the break about my research mm. and about his research. And then for the rest of the conference, every time I turned around, he was staring at me and I got really freaked out. I didn't know what mm. to do. I thought maybe I'd said something that had upset him, but I, I honestly had absolutely no clue why he was staring at me. And um, then I was too scared to talk to anyone else because, like, why was this man staring at me for the rest of the conference? And I had some other not-so-great trying-to-talk-to-people experiences. So, like, another conference, I went over to, like, one of those stand-up tables. There was two guys standing there, so I went over. When there was a lull in the conversation, I said something like, I don't know, what did you think of the last presentation or something? Yeah. Uh, And they both, like, turned around and looked at me and then looked at each other and started chatting to each other and completely ignored me. Oh, God. So that time I just stood there for about 30 seconds thinking, I, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to do now. Like, what do you do when that happens? So I just kind of like waited for a bit and then they just carried on talking to each other and ignoring me. And I just like walked off and went into the loo and sat down and started crying thinking, what am I doing wrong here? I just don't know what I'm doing wrong. You know, now if, if that happened, I'd be like, oh, are you rude, blah, 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 blah. I'd just walk off and then forget about them. But, you know, like yeah. when you're not very confident and you're new at that sort of thing, it's, it's horrendous. And so it wasn't until I think maybe like two or three years later, I went to a women in science conference in Brussels. Uh-huh. And I remember walking in thinking, oh, no, you know, like I've got to network. How's it going to be this time? And so I went in and like got my badge and got a cup of tea, went over to a standing table again. And then I can't remember if there are women there already. But I just remember that I didn't have to make any effort at all to talk to anybody, but I talked to loads and loads and loads of women throughout that whole conference with mm. no effort at all. 
um, and made some really good friends, some of whom are still friends today, and that's like 23 years ago now. And it was then that I realised that I was a woman in computing because <laughs> before wow. that I, ha- I don't think I'd really thought about it and I hadn't noticed. And it really helped me to realise that if you're in the majority, life is just easier. You know, like being in a conference which is women in STEM, we're all women in STEM, everyone's chatting to each other. There's no yeah. nothing going on. Whereas at a sort of traditional academic computer science conference, it, it was very, very different being a woman in that environment. I came back from that conference and set up the UK's first online network for women in tech. Was that at the British Computer Society? Or yeah, yeah I remember you doing yeah. that. Yeah, I just thought if if I'm feeling this, then other women must be as well. And so set it up, you know, and it's still going today with thousand plus members and doing all sorts of things twenty three years later. Amazing. So that was twenty three years ago. So I think going back fifteen years, I think is when we first met at this okay. thing called Crucible. So, well, for the benefit of people listening here, what, how would you describe what Crucible was and, and what impact did it have on you at the time? It had an amazingly positive impact. It was a program. So I think the kind of advert that I saw for it was, you know, like, do you have a PhD and you're interested in public engagement? And the whole mm. idea was to kind of fast track people with potential who had science PhDs who wanted to engage the public in some way or were do, already doing that sort of thing. Um, so I applied and got in. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, but it was a pretty simple idea, but very powerful, I think, which was, you know, take 100 people, take them away to, I think, I can't remember if it was three or four weekends during a year in different places, like long weekends, and just kind of throw a load of stuff at them, as in, that sounds like rotten tomatoes, I don't mean that. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, ideas. So we just had all different sorts of lectures from economic forecasting to singing to uh something to do with i don't know portraiture in art or something i just uh, very very different things molecular gastronomy oh i remember that one yeah 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 no so do i (laughs) (laughs) in fact i was talking about that to someone just the other day uh, because he was i've forgotten his name he was uh from bristol i think wasn't he yeah he Um, was from bristol didn't he teach heston blumenthal something like that yeah 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 Anyway, but uh, do you remember yeah. the Glaswegian linguists? Uh, that might have been not that might have been the next year. No, I don't know. I don't remember that. No. There was an amazing talk about different sort of dialects and words right. across Glasgow, uh, which was just a fascinating sort of yeah, anthropology of the city and language. Every every single lecture or session was interested, interesting, mm. and they were all so different. How did you justify that to your bosses or your colleagues, or maybe you didn't have to, but that you were spending the weekend learning about stuff that was maybe quite far removed from computer science and, and the day job, as it were? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the hard, hardest thing for me was finding someone to look after the kids for the weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. But so what did you get from that experience or what did you – because I don't know if you remember, I – I was at ne- I joined Nestor around that time. Or something. Yeah. Yeah, and I I sort of in I was given this project saying we'd like you to manage this program. Yeah. And I hired a woman called Rachel to uh, who who led on that. She she did a great job, but I didn't really know what this was. And then all of a yeah. sudden, I sort of went to some of these weekends. In fact, I think the first weekend I went along to is possibly the one where I met you, and um, okay. we were doing uh, yeah doing all yeah. these kind of weird and wonderful things. And Ostensibly, I was kind of resp- overall responsible for this, but I didn't really know what it was. It took me a while to get my head around. I think it took all of us a while to get our head around. <laughs> <laughs> to 
<laughs> but so, but how, how, yeah, what impact did that have on you then a bit longer term? Yeah, massive. Because, um, I mean, like kind of going to conferences, it's not just what people talk about, it's the people that you meet as well, right? So I yeah. just met so many incredible people. You know, practically everyone in the group was, actually it was 30 people, not 100 people, wasn't it? Yeah. It, it was 30, yeah. Yeah, so it was 30 people and they were all amazing. You know, yeah. and like just getting to know everyone and particularly getting to know, you know, like the next weekend and the next weekend, getting to know each other a bit better. Just kind of hanging out and finding out what people did. And we all had to like, you know, present a bit about ourselves at the first one in Edinburgh. And so you quickly got to know people. I mean, and I've used lots of the ideas from Crucible actually in Tech Up Women, the program that we run from Durham. Oh, brilliant. Okay. So residential weekends, we have four residential weekends, um, which mm. have to be online at the moment, but but we're in person. The, you know, telling everyone who you are, we do that as well. So I think there's loads of ideas in there that I've taken mm. um, from Crucible and used in Tech Up Women. I think you said to me a few years later, and I'm sure this wasn't the only thing, but it, that yeah. you said to me a few years later that it gave you, Crucible gave you the confidence to sort of go for a professorship. Totally. A, a little bit after that. Oh, yeah, no, it massively boosted my confidence, massively. I think being accepted onto a program like that where I think I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder coming from a, basically an ex-poly, mm. um, you know, like I'd been at, at South Bank for, I don't know, like 15 years or something, like undergraduate PhD mm. and then a lecturer, a really long time. Um, so then kind of mixing with people that I got on re- with really well from all sorts of unis all across the, the country, I think that gave mm. me confidence and kind of being part of that peer group. You know, whereas kind of when I've been going to computer science conferences, you know, I'd had the experience also of uh, like, you know, chatting to someone about research in the break or something. And then they'd say, and, and what university are you at? And I'd go, oh, yeah. London South Bank. And they'd be like, Oh, and just walk off. <laughs> so yeah. I had that experience as well, um, which doesn't really boost your confidence. <laughs> it, it really doesn't, does it? I, no. I did my I did my PhD as part of a government sponsored program called Postgraduate Training Partnerships, which I don't think exists anymore. But um, yeah. and there was this; they did all this training and all these courses and uh, other stuff, which was um, you know part of the part of the deal. And there was this slightly pompous ridiculous guy that kind of led this program within the company and he started the very first kind of day saying you are the future captains of industry and I I remember at the time thinking that's that's a ridiculous thing to say but actually it was a confidence boost and you know it it did it did make you think well I can within reason go and do anything and and we don't we don't tell ourselves and young people that kind of stuff enough no not enough, absolutely. And yeah, so you just reminded me. Yeah, so during the program, so I think after three, I think we got an extra weekend or something. It should have been three weekends in a year. Oh, that rings a bell. We got yeah, an yeah. extra one. I think we got some funding to have an extra weekend, and then by the like the last weekend, so the fourth weekend, um, you know, like we're like going around the room. So you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I remember saying, "Oh, I applied for and I got a head of department role." Um, ah, at okay. One so it was that direct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, and I wouldn't have had the confidence to apply for it without without Crucible. I don't think so. Yeah, it made a massive difference. It really did. Oh well, that's that's brilliant. Yeah, it made a big impact on me. Sorry, this is a bit kind of uh, narcissistic of me, but I'm just—I just remember <laughs> meeting you every few years. So a few years after that, or maybe it was yeah. only 
a year or so, we met at some conference and I don't think you'd ever used Twitter before, but do you remember that? Um, oh yeah, I was sitting next to you because I talked to people about it. Yes, yeah, so you were one side and Jonathan Raper was the other that, side. That's right, because you've yeah. now got way more Twitter followers than I do. <laughs> Was that the day you got on Twitter? Tell me, tell me about no, your social no, media journey. No, not quite, but it's the day I realised the potential of Twitter. Oh, I see. So I, I see, signed I up for it the year before, right? And uh, I'd kind of tried to play around with it on my desktop PC at home. Okay, yeah. And just not been able to work out what it was. And then, <laughs> kind of like fast forward like a year and a half, I think I signed up in well, it says June two thousand and seven on my profile, but I definitely didn't use it then. Yeah. And I think this was December 2008. It was, I know. And it was at the um, Institute of Civil, Civil Engineers. I can uh, okay. it now. And James Watley was on stage, Watley Dude. Yeah, and he yeah, was yeah. saying, who, who here's on Twitter? So like, yeah. I put my hand up and you're on my left and you did. And, and Jonathan was on my right. And so the three of us put our hands up. And I was saying, yeah, it's rubbish, isn't it? To like you <laughs> and um, Jonathan. <laughs> and I think between you, you, I remember Jonathan getting his phone out and saying, have you got it on your mobile phone? I was like, no. He says, okay, download Tweety now. I remember Tweety. And so I downloaded Tweety. And then uh-huh. we were all tweeting each other throughout the com- conference. I remember, And there yeah. were talks in another room. And so then in the afternoon, we were in different rooms, but I was looking at both your tweets, I think. Mm. And um, I was like, I can see what's happening in another, well, not see. I, I know what's happening in another room because I'm reading yeah. your tweets from there. Like I can be in two places at once. This is amazing. And like, and so then on the way that home that night, I was just so excited. And um, I realized quite quickly that about hashtags and like you can search things through hashtags. And then I realized yeah. Bletchley Park, I can find everyone in the world that's, that's interested in Bletchley Park. Oh, was it really that quick? Cause I know, cause yeah, I wanted to come on to that, but yeah. So yeah. Yeah, t- tell me a bit about the Bletchley Park story and social media. So like rewinding kind of, uh, so that was in December. So back to about the April, I think. So I'd gone to Bletchley Park in 2003, didn't mm-hmm. know anything much about it, found out that 10,000 people were there. I thought it was about 50 old blokes um, and more than half of them were women. It's about 8,000 women were there. Oh, right. Okay. During World War Two, yeah, cracking the codes throughout the whole of the Second World War. And I just found that incredible. And I found that out because I started chatting to these guys that were kind of tinkering away with this kind of strange engineering-y thing, uh, machine. And I didn't know what it was. So I went over to chat to them about it. And they told me that it was Turing's bomb machine, which is Mm. bomb with an E on the end, and um, that it was used to industrialize the code-breaking process. So they were telling me all about that, which I didn't know about, Um, and then asked me why I was there. And I was representing BCS Women, the, the, the Women's Network that I set up in 98. Um, and so they said, oh, did you know more than half the people that worked here were women? And I was like, no, I didn't know that. How many people worked here? 10,000. So I was completely blown away by that and thought, mm. I've got to do something to raise awareness of the women that worked here because no one knows about it. And so I went away that day kind of determined to highlight the women's contribution to interview some of the women that worked there to capture their stories mm-hmm. um, so that they weren't kind of like lost forever before, you know, like the, the veterans by then were quite old that had worked yeah, yeah. so I managed to finally get some funding for that interviewed I think 15 women and then at the launch of that project so that was in the launch of the project was about April 2008 and so at the launch the director of Bletchley Park said part the main thing he was saying was we don't have enough money you know sort of in financial difficulties Hmm. um you know like please help if you can kind of thing and then I got invited which I thought oh my god that's terrible and then I got invited up to Bletchley Park to a reception not long after that and did a full tour of the site for the first time 
went round with a guy who had worked there during the Second World War. So he was just mm. telling us all these amazing stories. And um, and we ended up looking at Hut 6, um, which is the hut with a blue tarpaulin over the end to stop the rain coming in. Um, <laughs> so finished up there. And he said, and the work that was done here was said to have shortened World War II by two years, potentially saving 22 million lives. And I just thought, this place can't close. I've got to do something about it. <laughs> so I went away that day thinking, how can I save Bletchley Park? And by then, so then I was head of department at University of Westminster. So I'd got that head of department role um, during the time on Crucible. Yeah, and this was um, July 2008. And um, so I was on a list of, email list of heads and professors across the UK of computing. So I emailed all of them, told them about a petition that was on the 10 Downing Street website, asked them to sign it, which was, we must say, Bletchley Park. Uh, sent that around, got lots of responses from people saying, you know, that's terrible. Yes, I'll sign the petition. Uh, and then check the petition a few hours later and loads of famous heads and professors of computing had signed the mm. petition. So I thought, okay, it's not just me. And then with a colleague at work, we wrote a letter to the Times to raise awareness. And um, and then also I contacted a few journalists, including Rory Keflin-Jones, who basically then the next week interviewed me at Bletchley Park, which then went out on the Today programme. Um was on BBC News and the BBC front page of the BBC website. So that was July 26th, I think, 2008. So it's this massive splash basically across all the media. So there was lots. So I got lots of emails from people from from all of that. Um, that I passed on to Bletchley Park, and then things quietened down. And I had no clue what else to do, to be honest, mm. because I'd kind of gotten TV, radio, in the papers. What else is there? Um, and that was like July 2008. And then it wasn't until that conference where I sat next to you, between you and Jonathan, when um, when Watley Dude said, who here's on Twitter? We had that conversation. Mm. I started using Twitter on my phone that day, using tw- the Tweety app. And then I just it just dawned on me that day, oh, my God, I can use this to campaign for Bletchley Park mm. because I can find people that are interested in Bletchley Park. And how would I have done that before? I just couldn't have done it. Hmm. So. I started playing around with it over Christmas because that was in December. Um, and then uh, and I started a blog, kind of like documenting the campaign. So I was like tweeting links to the blog and finding people that were talking about Bletchley Park, chatting to them on Twitter. Um, and then um, a few people got in touch with me saying they wanted to help with the campaign. So then after Christmas, met up with them, took them to um, Captain Jerry Roberts, one of the code breakers, was giving a talk. So I took them to mm-hmm. that at UCL took them up to Bletchley Park the next day. And they were kind of social media gurus, I suppose. I look at them then. They just knew how to use social media so well. And I was just right at the very beginning of trying to work out how to use it. Mm. And so I learned a lot from them and also connected them in with Bletchley Park, um, got them showcasing various things that Bletchley Park were doing, what was at Bletchley Park, started creating a lot of awareness in a whole different community of people really around the contribution of Bletchley Park and that it was under threat and all that sort of thing. Hmm. And then about a month after that, I was just looking at Twitter one night and Stephen Fry tweeted a selfie. He was stuck in a lift in Centre Point. And I just looked at the photo and I thought, Stephen Fry, he must be interested in Bletchley Park. Like I know he loves technology. I know he loves history. Hmm. So luckily he was following me on Twitter so I could send him some direct messages. So I sent him a few that night. And the next morning he tweeted a link to my blog and I was getting about 50 hits a day, which I thought was great. And then I got 8,000 hits that day <laughs> and was the, the most retweeted person in the world on Twitter that day. Wow. 
Yeah, and that's how it kind of blew up the whole Bletchley Park. Oh my goodness! Thing from from that day, really, that was a real turning point. But then it took another two years until Bletchley Park was saved. Really, of just campaigning in various ways, getting lots of people involved, loads of people doing loads of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Raising awareness, interviewing veterans, having like social media days at Bletchley Park, interviewing veterans and. Um, you know, sticking videos up on Vimeo with the veterans talking about their experiences and, you know, that people like um, Documentally, Christian Payne and... Um, I remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a brilliant story and I remember kind of following it at the time and being blown away. You were far more productive with social media than I was. Was that kind of part of your day job or were you just doing this as a kind of passion project, a kind of side yeah, project? Passion, yeah. yeah, passion project, yeah. yeah. And because, I mean, when I was at Westminster, it took me hour and 45 minutes to get to work and saying back again so on the phone every day yeah 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 for a, okay so yeah, for a time. few hours i was on my phone tweeting or searching twitter or something hmm. yeah. so where did you channel that energy next what what uh, what's next on <laughs> what was next on your list or what is next on your yeah. list to, to well, say so, so yeah i wrote the book saving bletchley park number one crowdfunded book or something like that I saw on your profile? Fastest, fastest crowdfunded book ever at the time. And yeah, and then started Tech Mums, social enterprise to teach tech skills to disadvantaged mums. Um, so yeah, that's 10 years ago now. So it's been running for 10 years. Brilliant. Can you, sorry, t- just tell us a bit more about that, just Tech Mums? So so I think, yeah, so I think after the Bletchley Park campaign, mm. I was like, oh, what should I do next? Uh, and I was quite annoyed at the time at how technology was always seen as a negative thing in the press, particularly. It's, mm. it's changed quite a bit now. Um, but back then, all the stories about tech were always negative. It was always mm. like, I don't know, taking away our jobs. I can't remember, you know, like wasting loads of money, big like government IT projects that have failed and wasted 10 billion or whatever. That still sounds quite relevant today. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I'm sure it's still happening. But that was the only thing to do with technology, whereas now there's there's so many other stories, yeah, yeah, yeah. some negative and some positive. And so I just thought technology and education have changed my life, you know, out of all recognition, really. Mm. Um, and I think if you've got some basic skills and confidence with technology, there's so many things that you can do that if you don't have those, you're just kind of stuck and you're not yeah. able to see a lot of what's going on in the world. I th- I also thought, you know, if I hadn't managed to, if I hadn't studied computing, I think, if I hadn't gone back into education, you know, that I probably still would have been working in a supermarket or something. Mm. And so I just saw the massive difference that it made to my life. And so I thought, well, I want to try and help make that difference happen for lots of other mums and mm. families. And so put together a program called Tech Mums, which teaches, you know, like basic social media skills, basic how to stay safe online, mm-hmm. um, how to set up a business online, and uh, started running it in a Bishop Challenger school in Tower Hamlets. And it was successful from the beginning, really, in terms of building mums' confidence and um, just helping them see what opportunities are out there and have the confidence to take them, really. Yeah, I followed it with interest and uh, yeah, it looks yeah, absolutely fantastic. How do you feel about social media and the sort of tech sector more generally now? Back in back in the day, you know, like when we were sitting in the Institute yep. of Civil Engineers back in 2008, that like the couple of years after that, Twitter was the most exciting thing practically ever in my life. You know, yeah. it it was just incredible and the 
amount of people that you could meet, really interesting people mm. all around the world, really, it was just amazing. So that was kind of like the honeymoon period, I suppose, with social yeah. media. And, you know, I think it's done lots of things because I just love the fact that through one word, one hashtag, like Black Lives Matter, millions yeah. of people can connect around the world and, and create social change. And I think that is just utterly amazing. And it's really helped people around the world to see what other people's lives are like, but not just yeah. the people that can actually travel there that have got the money to travel to different countries and meet people, mm. but just your average everyday person can see what someone's life is like, what, what you know, loads of people's lives are like all around mm. the world um, for good or bad, right? See the good things that they're doing. They can also see the bad things that they're doing. So it's connecting people in a way that we've never been able to do before for the whole of human history, really. And so, you know, that's such a massive change. And, you know, as human beings, there's good and bad in all sorts of ways. And so social media just reflects that, really. Mm. And I think because social media, you know, even though it's 10 or 15 years old, is still new, technology is still reasonably new compared to the whole of human history. You know, like the way we interact with each other, it's taken thousands, tens of thousands of years for it to develop to what it is, all coming in quite recently. I think no one really knows what's the best thing to do. And so we've got to try and work it out as we go along. Mm. And of course, people are going to make mistakes. Um, and it's kind of created a different power structure to the one that was there before. So, you know, so I guess previous to technology, the powerful people were mainly the people with money, I guess. And now mm. there's, you know, people from different sorts of backgrounds that can end up being powerful in various ways. And, you know, that hasn't happened before really to that extent. So how do you manage that? How do you help people to realize the effect that they're having? on others you know maybe millions of people that are following them on on youtube or or um, instagram mm. how do you manage that and i don't think we really you know i haven't got the answers i don't think anyone's really got the answers but i do think that we need to get some people together to really work hard on that and not just in a way like oh the tech companies are bad you know they're they're sort of evil in a way that the the tech companies have to come together and create real solutions mm. with, you know, people that understand human behavior and psychology with politicians and policymakers. Mm. We need people coming from around the whole, all of the issues to work out how to move towards some solutions. Cause I don't, mm. I don't think we've really got them yet. And I think without everyone coming together in the right way, that doesn't really seem to be happening. But I think, you know, I think kind of as time goes on, I think collaboration around solving problems with sort of diverse stakeholders is the way we should be trying to solve lots of the world's problems. And we've now got the opportunity to do that because we can connect to each other mm. you know, from different countries, different backgrounds, different experiences. So I feel like the opportunity is out there to be able to solve these problems but we're still going about it in a very old-fashioned way. Yeah, no, I, to I totally agree with all of that. And I think the opportunities out there and the, the need is out there like never before. I mean, yeah. I take some comfort from the 
the, the, the COVID vaccine, even though it's very unequal the way it's been distributed, but just the yeah. way that scientists came together to um, share knowledge and, yeah. and find a solution it's to incredible. this. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, and hopefully we can do that with regards to climate. But, you know, time, yeah. time will tell whether we've left that too late. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just wondering where you see the green shoots. I mean, I, I agree with everything you just said. For me, the honeymoon period lasted probably right up to about 2016 when I, when I and many others maybe got a rude awakening, sort of underplaying the negative aspects of some of these technologies and, and overestimating the, the hopeful and positive ones. And so for me, it's been a sort of five-year journey of trying to get my head around, like you say, this phenomenally powerful technology that has connected us in, in brilliant ways like what you've done at Bletchley Park but also brutal ways um so yeah where, where are the green shoots for you what gives you hope well I think the the social change that's gone along with that so from Black Lives Matter no one can now deny the kind of disgusting treatment that you know that happens hmm. to black people every day and and they have to live with every day and so it's it's made the rest of the world that didn't understand that before aware of obviously not every detail but but some sort of awareness of we really need to to do something about this and i can see that happening right so mm. it's you know change is never fast enough for me i always feel like i'm sort of like wading through treacle to try and make change happen and, and mm. change is happening very slowly but at the same time people are having conversations around the world that they wouldn't have been having five years ago, 10 years ago. And the same with like Me Too and the way that that's changed the way that we, that kind of society sees women and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. You know, that's kind of being shared. People's stories are shared around the world and, you know, so many positive stories as well as negative in terms of people coming together to kind of sort out issues and try and make things better i feel very positive in that way and that it's it's creating painful social social change i think but that's going in the right direction definitely mm. in terms of helping people to connect with each other and understand where things have been going wrong and try and do something about it and and also for you know for like for like men to realize that it's just not a one-off if some you know, bloke grabs a woman in a pub. It's happening all, all the time, all mm. around the place, and we need to do something about it. And also seeing the situation for for women, for people of colour in other countries, you know, we've got more of an understanding of what life's like for lots of people around the world. And so lots of people will care about trying to make that better, I think. You know, like there's no way that we would have had Malala before social media, before the internet, because we wouldn't mm. have known, right? So, and, you know, Greta Thunberg, so amazing young women who were just saying, you know, that's not good enough. I'm not going to put up with that. And, like, <laughs> change needs to happen. And so we wouldn't have known them. They just would would have been in their communities and unknown if it weren't yeah. for technology and social media. So, so that, to me, means that more things like that will happen, more people like that will step forward more people will group together to make the right thing happen. So I am a bit of a Pollyanna <laughs> yeah. in terms of almost always optimistic. So what's the next thing on your to-do list to change, to tackle, <laughs> to, and how can we help or how can the people listening to this perhaps get involved? Various things, I suppose, like which one's top of my head. I've got a, a research group which is focused on bias in AI. So I okay. think, you know, AI is kind of 
dominating our lives more and more and a lot of the the software comes from a place where bias exists because we're all biased so how how do we try and make sure as much as possible that the ai that software is not biased um and we're all kind of learning in terms of inclusion and how to create inclusive workplaces inclusive Mm. societies and so i'm really keen to as much as possible try and work out how to have as little bias uh in our ai as possible Mm -hmm. so that's one thing also I'm really keen to get more diversity in, in people working in tech. So I guess mm. I've been working on that for a while. But tech Up Women is all about retraining women with potential, particularly from diverse backgrounds into tech careers. Because, you know, if you don't have diverse teams creating software, your software is not going to be fit for purpose for everybody. Thank you, Sue. As she says, if she can do it, then so can you. I really like what she said about collaboration around problem solvings with diverse groups of people. On a personal note, I'm delighted to have played a tiny role in helping build her confidence through the Crucible program to go for that big promotion and a few years later realize the potential of social media. And we didn't even get to talk about how she chose her Desert Island Discs, but never mind. If you want to find out a bit more about Sue, please check out the links in the show description. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community. Everything we do is with thanks to our community members, clients, partners, and patrons. So many thanks to you all. If you'd like to find out a bit more about us, please check out www.weareliminal.co. Lastly, please, 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 can you like and subscribe to this podcast? Give us a rating on Apple iTunes if you haven't already done so, and share it with three people that you think might like it as well. Until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.